Here at Connect Church, we're busy with a series through the book of Genesis entitled Where Faith and Life Intersect. This was a series we planned last year, yet the portion of scripture that we're looking at today deals with a national disaster, that of a seven-year-long famine that affected many nations. It was actually an international disaster. And the chapters that we're going to be looking at today are Genesis 41 to 44. It's in Genesis chapter 41 that we first discover that a worldwide disaster is coming. God speaks to the Pharaoh of Egypt through a series of dreams. I would imagine that these were recurring dreams as the Pharaoh is left thoroughly disturbed by them. They don't seem to be like ordinary dreams. We're going to pick up the story at the point where Joseph has been brought in to enable the Pharaoh to understand the meaning of his dreams. Genesis chapter 41 verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh describes his dreams to Joseph. And he says, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile when out of the river there came seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first, but even after they ate them, no one can tell that they'd done it. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up. And then in the second dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 29, Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it. Here in these dreams, God warns the Pharaoh that a national disaster is coming, that a severe famine is going to hit the whole world in seven years' time. Isn't this interesting? The Lord giving the Pharaoh advanced warning about what is going to happen. I think it's very significant. We see, number one, that God cares about people and their well-being. This is not the nation of Israel that God is speaking to. This is a nation that worships false gods and not Yahweh, the true God. Pharaoh himself regarded himself as being divine, a God. 
Furthermore, he was no democratically elected leader. He is, he is a dictator. And this is a nation that is in no way serving the Lord. They're a nation who, who worship idols. Yet we see that God is concerned about them, that God has compassion, that God seeks to warn them about the disaster that's coming their way. This passage here in Genesis reminds us about God's concern and compassion for all people, regardless of who they are, where they are. Jesus reinforces the same truth in the Sermon on the Mount when he told the people, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There is a blessing that God gives even to the unrighteous. In Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus also says, reminds us that the Most High, He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. God war, God's warning to Pharaoh in his dreams about a pending disaster speaks of the kindness and compassion of God. Another example that shows God's care in this regard is, is the story of Jonah, who was sent off to Nineveh. Jonah hated the Ninevites because they had a reputation of being cruel and ruthless. Jonah didn't want them to experience God's grace. But God had compassion even on the Ninevites. And in the very last verse of the last chapter of the book of Jonah, we read the Lord saying to Jonah, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and many cattle. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God cares more than we know about people everywhere, whether they're righteous or wicked, good or bad. God has compassion on all he has made. Egypt was not a godly or a righteous nation by any stretch of the imagination, but God was concerned about them, hence his warning to Pharaoh. The second thing we see in this passage is that God works through human government, as flawed as it may be. When God wanted to do something that would benefit all the citizens of the land, he chose to work through the Pharaoh. Even though this Pharaoh considers himself to be a god, though he's fallen and sinful and puffed up and proud, when God wants to work in the nation, he works through the system of government that is there. This has so many implications for us today. This is why the Bible tells us to pray for our government, to cooperate with our government, to support the government. The system of human government is ordained by God. Because of humankind's sinfulness and our innate tendency towards anarchy, God has established human government. It's intended by God to be a means of his grace in our lives. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote, even while he himself was living under an oppressive government, Romans 13 verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. 
and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is why we are to cooperate with our government and to support the government in its efforts to do good. We also need to recognize it is tremendously difficult to exercise good and wise government in our day. Shakespeare once wrote, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And how true that is. Think of the weight of responsibility that lies upon the head and shoulders of our leaders in government. They're having to make some terrible decisions right now. How do you strike the balance between so many different demands? And whatever you choose, there's a chorus of people saying you should have done the other thing. Right now in governments around the world, leaders are having to make lose-lose decisions. It's tough. This is why we need to be praying for our leaders and for those in government. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we read these words. Paul writes, I urge that requests, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Think of all the hard decisions that are needing to be made at the moment. Decisions about public health, containment, lockdown, the distribution of resources, how to get food to starving people, what to do about our economy that's just been downgraded. We really need to be praying for our leaders that they would make wise and good decisions. Perhaps many of our leaders in government are as disturbed right now as the Pharaoh of Egypt was in Joseph's day. Pharaoh asked his closest advisors about his dreams and what they mean, and they don't have a clue. Verse 24b, I told this to the magicians, but none could explain it to me. Leaders don't magically have all the right answers, even when they want to do the right thing. This is why we have to be praying for them. By the way, these magicians spoken of here in verse 24, these are not guys who do tricks. Our English word magician isn't a good translation. They are not court jesters or entertainers. These were the wise men, the advisors, the strategists, the political consultants. They advised the king on all the important matters and they don't have any answers. In verse 15, we read Pharaoh saying to Joseph, I had a dream, no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. It's only God that can help you, Pharaoh. And I believe most of our national leaders really want to do what's best for our nation. Let's hope that like Pharaoh, they too look to the Lord for wisdom and guidance. Once again, what's remarkable about this story is that it is God who reaches out to Pharaoh. How much more is God ready and willing to aid leaders that reach out to him? How wonderful it was that our president called for a day of prayer last week. Let's take a closer look at verse 32. It's a verse that reminds us about the sovereignty of God. Verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms 
is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. And God will do it. This is a truly fascinating verse from a theological perspective. It's a statement that holds two truths in tension. On the one hand, the verse stresses the sovereignty of God, that God is in charge, that if God decides a thing is going to happen, nothing can change that. God says a famine is coming and nothing can change that reality. The matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Then on the other hand, we have God caring enough about the people of Egypt to warn them about what's coming. It's a verse like this that holds together both the sovereignty of God and human response. And we see in the story too that God doesn't just take the problem away, prevent the famine from happening, he knows the famine is coming. He gives Pharaoh seven years warning. God could stop it, but he doesn't. We're not told why. Rather, God gives us the wisdom and the grace to handle the disaster. By the way, another remarkable example of God's sovereignty can be seen in Isaiah chapter 45. This is where God used the king of Persia, King Cyrus, to bring home the Jewish exiles who'd been in Babylon for 70 years. It's the classic example of God working through a national leader, even through one that doesn't acknowledge God. Even though he wasn't Jewish, it was King Cyrus who gave the order for the Jews to be able to return to the land of Israel. This example is relevant because it shows that God has the power to work through even leaders that have no relationship with him or that acknowledge him. Because nothing can thwart the purposes of God. Here's that passage from Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations. Do you notice how God refers to this Secular Persian leader is my anointed. This is messianic language. Uh, you are my anointed one in this situation. And God says, verse 4, I'm going to bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord. Apart from me, there is no other. I'm going to strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, Men may know there's none beside me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Even in a time of disaster, we must remember that God is sovereign. This is why we pray. If God didn't have power over all things, there would be no point in praying. We pray because God has authority over everything and everyone. So let's be praying for our leaders because they have an incredibly difficult job to do right now. Leaders everywhere, in government, in the police forces, in our hospitals. But back to our story, as the story unfolds, 
We see that through God's providence, God has brought Joseph into a position of great influence and leadership. Joseph doesn't have to build up hospitals in a hurry. He has to build warehouses to stock food. Verse 48, Joseph collected all the food produced in the seven years of abundance and stored it in the cities. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. And he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. It's in verse 53 of chapter 1 that disaster strikes. The seven years of abundance came to an end and the seven years of famine began. Just as Joseph said, there was famine in all the other lands. Verse 56, when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain. Verse 57, all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was so severe in all the world. We read in the next chapter, 40, chapter 42, that one family that was affected by this worldwide disaster was the household of Jacob, the family of Israel. This is very important to see. Having a relationship with God, being chosen by God, doesn't spare one from the horrors of a disaster. They were not magically spared from trouble because they loved God. They too were caught up in the suffering. This is such an important lesson to learn, especially for younger Christians. As Christians, we live in a fallen world. And often at times we suffer along with everybody else. Yes, God gives us strength and grace. We experience the joy and peace of the Holy Spirit. But we're in this disaster like everybody else. There is a virus out there and we're as vulnerable to it as everyone else. If our currency weakens, it affects us all. There can be a certain naivety about Christians in this regard. But Christians aren't spared from the trials and troubles of this world. As Jesus said himself, every day has enough trouble of its own. That's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not unspiritual to suffer. And it doesn't mean God has stopped loving us when we go through terrible times. Here's the family of Israel, Jacob and sons, God's hope for the world. And they're caught up in the famine. They're going to die of hunger like everybody else if they don't get help fast. Another thing that resonated with me in the story is verse 1 of chapter 42. After the crisis hits and Jacob and his whole family have almost run out of food, we read Jacob saying, why do you just keep looking at each other? Go down and get some food. This is a little bit like our phrase, don't just stand there, do something. I think many of us can relate to what's going on here. Our lives have been disrupted by the crisis we're in. Many of us are now working from home. Millions in our country have no income because they can't go to work. Some have no food on their shelves. Others are living by themselves and have no human touch or contact 
These are tough times. They're unsettling times. And we all experience heightened levels of anxiety. Jacob asks his family, why are you just looking at each other? Why are you you're standing here? It's because they're trying to work out what to do next. Most of us have never experienced this before. Our lives have been disrupted and that is stressful and it's okay to feel shaken and upset. Let's recognize what's going on inside of ourselves and talk to it about what we're feeling with a friend or a family member or a pastor. Let's not get stuck in the negativity. Why do you keep looking at each other? For Jacob's family, it meant making a long journey to Egypt to buy supplies. And they have no idea about the surprise that's waiting for them there. The story goes on. The ten, ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Jacob's fear that something terrible might happen to Benjamin was born out of his experience of what had happened to Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons of his favorite wife. So Jacob was particularly sensitive when it came to caring for the well-being of Benjamin. And right now in our society, there are those needing extra tender loving care right now. Family members, those living alone. The elderly, those challenged by mental illness who suffer from depression. Those potential victims of domestic and gender-based violence and child abuse. Those who are already ill. Let's think about those in our society who are very vulnerable right now and make sure we support them as best we can. Reading from verse 6, now Joseph was the governor of the land. And when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Another thought that came to me while meditating on this passage is this. Is there anyone that you have a strained relationship with right now? This was just a normal day at work for Joseph, when suddenly, out of the blue, the very people who'd sold him into slavery years earlier are on their knees before him, begging for help. Now what's he going to do? How would you react in a situation like that? Let's think about Joseph's history with his brothers. It wasn't his fault he was the favorite child. But what did his family members do to him? First they plotted to kill him, then they decided to make some cash and sell him into slavery. And they all went along with it, even though some of them didn't really want to. They were carried along by the mob. People do terrible things sometimes in groups. But it's terrible enough to be sold into slavery, but by members of your own family. 
Think of the hurt and the pain and the anger and the resentment that Joseph would have experienced. But by the grace of God, Joseph dealt with all of those emotions. It does not appear that he harbored anger or nursed a grudge. He was incredibly gracious. Most importantly, if Joseph had fallen into self-pity and the blame game and being a victim, he never would have been able to fulfill his God-given destiny. He would have been too busy feeling sorry for himself. But that wasn't the only hurt Joseph had to deal with. The next big crisis that hit Joseph was when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He rejected her advances and after being scorned, she accused Joseph of rape. And off to prison he went. Now for the second time he's been deceived and betrayed by those close to him. Again, Joseph has no time for resentment. No time for self-pity. No time waving a fist at God saying, why did you allow this to happen to me? Even after experiencing personal tragedy and betrayal, Joseph presses into God. And in so doing, he finds God's purpose for his life. Even before the famine starts, he's full of faith. We saw that last week in what Joseph named his sons. He called the first one Manasseh because God had made him forget all his troubles. And he called his second son Ephraim because he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Joseph had every right to be angry at about how unjustly he'd been treated in life. He'd gone from hero to zero, favorite child to slave, head slave to languishing in a dungeon as a sex offender. He had every reason to be disappointed with life, jaded, cynical, but he chose to trust the Lord. And as the story of Joseph unfolds, he set about being reconciled to his brothers, to those who betrayed him. And I believe at this point, he's holding no ill will towards them, no anger, no resentment. And God can do that in our lives. As the story unfolds, he does first test them to see if they've changed. He tests them in a, in a number of ways. One of the ways is that he imprisons some of them and then sees whether they would be willing to give up Benjamin's life for their own. He hides money in their sacks. He accuses them of theft. These are all tests that Joseph designs to test his brothers. Finally, he tests whether they would be willing to give up their lives for his baby brothers, Benjamin. Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified. Verse 21, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Isn't this interesting? Even years later, the guilt about what they'd done to Joseph is still weighing on the brothers' hearts. Joseph is not living with a grudge. He is free, but his brothers are still living with terrible guilt. For this to be uppermost in their minds at this point, when they're getting food in Egypt, for them to be having this conversation shows what, what's in their hearts and minds. It's still weighing heavily on them, what they did to their little brother so many years ago. And they're just waiting for God to get them back. This is a reminder that we need to bring God's grace to the perpetrators of crime as well as to the victims. Abusers need ministry in the grace of God, as do those they abused. Which brings me back to my point. Joseph aims to be reconciled with his brothers. In this time of lockdown, can you think of those that you need to be reconciled, restored with? People that have maybe hurt you, harmed you, perhaps for no reason, wounded you in some way. Perhaps there are people that you or I have wronged and hurt by our actions. As Christians, we don't have to forgive and forget. That saying doesn't come from the Bible, but we do have to forgive. And being a peacemaker is central to the identity of being a child of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, as one of the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus taught so much about the importance of forgiving people. How we are to always be the ones that make the first move when it comes to reconciliation and restoration. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you, you're worshipping God and suddenly you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go and be reconciled to your brother. Then continue with your worship. If we become aware that someone is something against us, we are to go to them and resolve it. And in Matthew 18, Jesus approaches the problem from the other angle. He says, if your brother sins against you, you're the one that's been offended. You're the one that's been hurt. In that case, you must go and show him his fault. If someone had offended us, Again, we're to go in both situations. We as Christians, as peacemakers, are always the ones who ought to take the initiative and to seek reconciliation. And reconciliation is a beautiful thing. It's in verse 29 of Genesis 43 that Joseph meets Benjamin for the first time. As this is his... his his biological brother by the same parents. As he, as he looked and saw Benjamin, his own mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? 
And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to, to cry. He went into his private room and, and wept there. Then Joseph could control himself no longer. He said, get everybody out. And when there was no one else there, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father living? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What a gracious attitude. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. Verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. As we close today, is there anyone that you still need to be reconciled with? Being inspired by this example of Joseph. Why not ask God right now what you can do to be restored in whatever strained relationships you might find yourself in? Joseph could have had his brothers thrown into prison, made into slaves. He could have given them a taste of their own medicine. He could have just sent them back empty-handed to die of hunger. But Joseph chose forgiveness. He chose grace over anger. Forgiveness over getting justice. What a guy. In conclusion, let me recap some of the key points from today's sermon. The backdrop to today's sermon is of an international disaster. A seven-year-long famine that affected the whole world. And yet we see how compassionate God is. Though Pharaoh is an idol worshipper, though Pharaoh thinks he himself is God, God still cares about him and God reaches out to him. God has compassion for all who are caught up in this disaster. We also see that God in his sovereignty doesn't make disasters go away, though he can make them go away. But rather he warns us about what is to come sometimes and helps us through those disasters. We saw that small example about how stress can affect us. It can lead to paralysis, anxiety, inactivity, inaction. Jacob says, why are you just standing there doing nothing? Do something. Do something constructive. Let's all find good ways to use our time to make the most of the situation we find ourselves in. Let's be part of the solution, not part of the problem. We also see in this passage that God works through governments. Romans 13 teaches us that God has established government for our good. And we can see, too, that those in power don't always know what to do. 
Even Pharaoh and all his advisors still needed God's help. Governing is difficult in these days. This is why we need to be praying for those in leadership, not criticizing, but supporting and being like Joseph, helping where and as God gives us opportunity. And we also saw a mess, a, 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 a lesson about the sovereignty of God in this passage. Remember what Joseph says just before he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He says this thing of the coming famine, the matter has been established by God and God will do it soon. There is a tension between God's sovereignty and human response. And my final challenge from this passage is this. Even though Joseph experienced terrible injustices in his life, he never became a victim. He never adopted a victim mentality. He didn't let it define his life and who he was. Sure, the pain of rejection and betrayal must have been enormous. But Joseph worked through that pain and he found his purpose in God. He never held a grudge. He didn't seek revenge. He went further and actively sought reconciliation with those with whom he was estranged. Is there any relationship that you can think of right now that is a source of hurt and pain in your life? I would encourage you to process that with God and to find healing and forgiveness. And maybe some of you are even like those brothers who for years have been living with regret and guilt for something you did maybe years ago. You too need to find your peace in God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that it always speaks to us. And we thank you, Lord, that this passage reveals how much you care about all of humanity. Whether we're serving you or not, you are compassionate and you are merciful. And we pray that we pray for our leaders, Lord, that they would make good and wise decisions. Just as you spoke to Pharaoh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to our leaders that we would be a nation that is governed well. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that if we need to make right with anybody, if there are things we need to work through with other people or even with you, we pray that in this time of lockdown, of solitude, that you would speak to us and work deeply in our lives. And we want to pray, Lord, that you would stop the spread of this virus. We know you're sovereign, but we know that you answer prayer. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, this, this dreadful sickness that has come upon the world, that you would bring it to an end, Lord, and that you would show us grace and mercy. We love you, we worship you, and we we choose to trust you in these days. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching.